You know, as I was thinking about this uh, season of Advent, and, uh, you know, I have a lot of childhood memories that kind of flood in uh, on me, and uh, we're going to talk this morning, the first step in our Advent journey is going to be the theme of hope. Right, look at the theme of hope, and there's so much expectation built into uh, this season. I mean, we just got over Thanksgiving, and we're kind of now leaning, looking, expectant for Christmas Day, and that's kind of built up into this. And so as we think about that, we're going to talk about uh, hope. And as I was thinking about kind of my childhood, I grew up in a big family, some of you know. Uh, actually, there's a picture of us up here on the screen uh, back from the, uh, the 80s. I don't know if you can see that very well. That's all six of us. And then my, uh, my cousin, Josh, um, over there. And uh, they lived with us uh, for a while. So there were really seven children in the home. I think I'm about 10 years old. I'm over here in the corner. I'm maybe 11 years old uh, in that picture. And uh, we had a big family. We had a crazy family, four boys uh, with my cousin. There were five boys in the house, two little girls. And so as you can imagine, it was crazy all the time, but it got really crazy around Christmas time. Okay. It just started amp, the energy would just amp up as we got closer and closer to Christmas, right? As you see, start you know, presents getting put around the tree, and as things start coming together, um, the anticipation for a home like this, the energy just started to get kind of out of control, okay? So we, we, we loved Christmas. We were excited about Christmas. Christmas was a beautiful time for us. But there was one thing we really looked forward to at Christmas. And yes, there were, there were presents we were excited about, and there was good food we were excited about. But we would have our Christmas moment, and all the things would happen that you would expect to happen. You know, there'd be the Christmas story read, and, you know, we'd go around talking about why we're excited about Jesus and a good Christian home, you know. And then we'd all get to open one gift at a time, you know, and kind of do all this kind of stuff. And that was all great. That was all, you know, it was fun. But we were really waiting for my dad's uh, bag of gifts. So we all had, the, you know, the, the normal nice gifts you get. But every Christmas, my dad did this thing where he would, the night before Christmas, he would go to the dollar store. Do you guys have those around here? Do we have dollar stores around here? I, I don't know if I've bought anything in the Bay Area for a dollar. But uh, it, it seems like a miracle now. But uh, they have these things all over Missouri called the dollar store. And you could go in. And when I was a kid, you literally, with tax, would be like a dollar six, you know, cents to, to buy something that you wanted, anything in the store for a dollar. And my dad, the night before Christmas, would go to the store by himself with a big Santa Claus bag, and he would collect dollar store gifts to put in that bag. Now, they weren't just any kind of gifts. Um, they were weapons, Okay, and I don't know if you know what kind of weapons are sold at the dollar store, but they're like bow and arrows, like plastic bow and arrows. Um, there's like cans of silly string, you know, there's all Nerf guns, you know, the cheapest Nerf guns you've ever imagined in your life. And he would just get a bag of this stuff and fill it up and he would hide it in his room. And then on Christmas Day, we would do all the stuff, you know, we'd open up all the things, but, but we're really just waiting for the moment. Dad would emerge with his bag. And when he did, all hell would break loose. It would go nuts, silly string flying everywhere, people screaming, Nerf guns going. And this tradition, my brother here, this is as an adult, 
okay? Uh, this is, he's now in his 20s at this picture. Uh, you could tell he's shooting that bow and arrow. It's flying sideways. He's got pure anger in his heart toward one of us. I don't know who. Well, so probably silly string got in the back of his ear. But this was just our tradition, and it's what we looked forward to, and it's what I grew up in. And I want to say this, and this is kind of, for me, uh, the linchpin of today's talk and where the Lord maybe would speak to me and maybe where he might speak to you. But I remember I grew up in this, in this family, and, and from the earliest days of growing up, I just thought to myself, this is what I want. Like, I want this big family. I, I want this fun moment. I want a marriage and kids. And I want all, this is, this is what I'm made for. This is what I want. And so much so that when I got to college as a college freshman, I was sitting in a class. I went to a, a little Christian college. And at the beginning of class, the professor would say, can I pray for anyone at the beginning of class? And in my first week in college, sitting in class, I raised my hand and I said, yeah, I want to find a wife. <laughs> Don't do that. It makes all the girls in the class go, uh, don't talk to that guy. But it was just instilled in me, man. I want to be married. I want to have a family. I want kids. I I want all of this. And and, and so I went into college going, that's the goal. That's what I want. Then I got to college and I I said what I wanted and girls ran. (laughs) And you know what I saw coming out of college is I saw friend after friend after friend meet their wife in college, get married a day or two after we graduated. And in the first three summers after college, I was a groomsman 12 times. 12 times, not including my three brothers who got married my fourth year after college, all in the same year. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a season of waiting. Anyone had to sit in a season of waiting before? Like you had, you had to sit in a moment where things as you wanted them to be were not that way yet. The things you really longed for, the things you hoped for, the things you thought would be the the ultimate way life ought to be, you didn't have it yet. And not only did you not have it, but isn't this the way it happens sometimes? Is you see other people around you start to get it. And then your heart, especially if you're a Jesus follower, has a choice in this moment. You go, what, what, do I, what do I do with hope? What do I do with what I want, with my expectation for what's in front of me? What do I do with this vision of the future that, that I want so much, that I'm longing for so deeply? What do I do with that now in the waiting? And waiting and hope are so deeply connected that they're almost impossible to separate. They're two sides of the same coin. In fact, so much so that if you read your Bible, you'll find again and again the words hope and waiting in the same phrase, linked together so closely because waiting seems to be the most intentional way that God cultivates hope in our lives. And so that's what we come to kind of in this story in Luke chapter 2 that was read earlier so beautifully by John. We come to two people in this story who have waited their entire lives. They've waited on a promise that a rescue was coming. Well, a rescue from what? Well, they had, at this point in time, uh, Israel had spent 400 years with no word from a prophet. 
For 400 years, God has said nothing. He has been silent. No prophet to come and say, hey, this Persia over here, you're going to be rescued from them. Nothing about that. Greece comes in and wipes out Persia and they take control. God has nothing to say about that. The Roman government moves in, takes over the whole known world, conquers Israel, destroys the temple. God has nothing to say. 400 years of silence. 400 years of hope seemingly being crushed. And we show up in the text today and, and Luke pulls two people up to say, here are two people who have waited with hope. Here are two people that have kept their confidence in God high. Two people who have said, I don't care what's going on around. I don't care how far my people are spread. I don't care that when we come to the temple, we're worshiping in a different language than the one we came with. We're reading the Old Testament in Greek, not even in Hebrew anymore. Where is God in all of this? And yet these two people have waited and leaned into with confidence that God is at work. And I think the question for us is, how do we do that? How do we lean into all that God has for us? How do we wait in the not yet for what God has for us in the future. Because they had to do that when Jesus came. And brothers and sisters, Jesus has come, but we have to do it until he returns. And that's the whole purpose of Advent. So in Luke 2, check this out. We're going to look at these two people. Then we're going to ask the question, how did they do what they did? How did they stir themselves with hope as they waited. Check this out, Luke 2, verse 22. We read it once. We're going to read through it again. Jesus, uh, his parents have taken him back to Bethlehem because of the decree. Now they have to go to the temple and to do what every Jewish family had to do, which is take their child to the temple to make sure everything was right, to do all the sacrifices, to consecrate their child. So they go when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, and they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb, in other words, the firstborn, I love that old phrase there, the firstborn is to be called holy to the Lord. And so they're going to offer Jesus to the Lord. In verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the promises of God to come through. Like God promised that this is not the way it's going to be. We're not going to be an oppressed people forever. We're not going to be crushed like this forever. God has a plan. He promised to Abraham that his people would be a blessing to the world. And that just isn't where we are right now. And he says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's a, that's a key right there. The Holy Spirit is with this guy. Not, not somewhere to be grabbed, not somewhere out to be reached out to. 
The Holy Spirit is with, walking with Simeon. And had told him, right, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. There's a guy who walks with the Holy Spirit. And the parents brought in the child Jesus for him according to the custom of the law. And he took him up in his arms and he blessed him and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing, not just to Abraham and his family, but to the whole world. This is the promise, and Simeon knows it. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that it is opposed to and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. In other words, the trajectory of this young boy is a cross. And your soul is going to be pierced, but so will be the hearts of many revealed. In 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in many years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So you got Simeon. The Holy Spirit is on him. The Holy Spirit is leading him. The Holy Spirit is speaking to him. And he prophesies about the purpose of Jesus. And then you get this prophetess, Anna, and what do we learn about Anna? Anna's, Anna's committed in fasting and praying. But here's what we find out about Anna. Anna got married, was married for seven years, lost her husband, never got another husband until this day. That means that, that God gave her a family and then took it. And never provided. Maybe like Ruth got another husband, right? Boaz came into Ruth's life and rescued Ruth, but, but Anna never got that. And in those days, there's no future if you don't have a family. If you don't get married, if you don't have children. And all this is taken away. She waits for God maybe some 60 years to come through for her. She waits some 60 years for maybe God to provide another husband to give her a family and a future or to just come back and rescue her and her people. But she waits and she waits. Are you waiting on anything? Are you waiting on anything? Are you waiting for something maybe to happen uh, in your circumstance that seems broken and you can't seem to fix it? Are you waiting for a situation to somehow maybe resolve in your family? There's, there's a relationship with a loved one, and, and you don't know how to untie the knot? Maybe this morning you, you've, you're in the room, and you've got chronic pain nobody knows about, physical or mental. And, and you just walk with it all the time. It's with you. And it seems like the, the time has passed when it would be right for God to go ahead and fix this. 
You've waited long enough that you still have to walk with it. I have a friend that has chronic back pain. He's a young man. One freak accident when he was 22 years old. And he'll live for the rest of his life with chronic back pain. Waiting. Are you waiting on anything? And the question is, how did, how did Simeon and how did Anna wait like this? And we see cues with, with the spirit being on Simeon and in Simeon. We see cues with, with Anna coming and fasting and praying and fixing her attention on the Lord every single day. We see cues with that. But I, I think one of the things that these two have mastered that maybe we need to master is we need to master the art, the, the active art of waiting. See, a lot of times we, we think waiting is passive, don't we? We think waiting is something that's put on top of us, sat on us, and it's a situation we can't control, which is not untrue. Just because you're sitting in a situation you can't control doesn't mean you're supposed to be passive. Did you know that? And so we're sitting there thinking, well, I can't do anything about it. So what we tend to do in moments of waiting is instead of doing what these two did, which is to press in to Jesus in an active, intentional way, or press into God the way they understood Jehovah, was we tend to complain. We try to wrestle with the situation. We spin and we turn. And, and what happens to our heart? Does, does it move toward tenderness and softness? Toward God and others, or does it tend toward hurt and anger and bitterness? I, I know in my journey and, and some of the substantial ways I've had to wait in my life, the, the temptation to lean into hurt and bitterness and frustration is, is, is not a hard path to fall into. It's a quick, easy, natural step my heart wants to go. The active, intentional work that God wants to do in our hearts as we lean into hope is a lot of work, a lot of intentionality. And I think these two saw lots of examples of that in the Old Testament. In fact, that's why we read Psalms 25. That's why we looked at Psalms 25, because what we saw is we see David actually intentionally waiting. How did he do it? How did he intentionally wait when everything he was hoping for was something he couldn't control and he couldn't change? How did he lean into that? I want to show you how he did that in Psalms 25, because I think it shows us how Simeon and Anna waited, how they actively leaned into all that God was doing so that they, their heart went to hope and not anger or bitterness. Check this out in Psalms 25. We read it again during the readings, but I want to show it to you quickly because I think these are the things that these saints were looking at as they waited with hope for the redemption, for the consolation of Israel. Check it out. 25.1 says this, to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. What is David saying? How does David actively turn his heart toward hope in waiting? Well, he brings all of his longing straight to God. So, so what are you longing for? What are you leaning into? What is it your heart is breaking for? 
Have you taken that to the Lord? Have you just presented it to him and said, hey, here it is. Here it is. For years of my life, it was to say, I cannot stand that this, I have to be stuck in this thing called singleness. It, 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 was a, it was a thing that was breaking in on my heart all the time. And so to survive as someone who followed Jesus, I had to take that and say, hey, Lord, you know the longings of my heart. You know, you know what's going on inside. Here it is. David says, I present my soul to you. And then he says, don't let me be put to shame. What he's saying is, don't let me look like an idiot. Don't let me look foolish. You ever thought that when you've had to wait on a situation you can't control? You're like, I feel so stupid. Why can't, why can't I just snap my fingers? It's happening for everybody else. Everybody else is getting the next job that they want. Everyone else is getting promoted. They're waiting to get promoted. Everybody else's thing is happening for them. They're getting, they're getting all their stuff together, and it's all going on, and they're, and they're getting married, or they're having kids, or everything everybody else wants is all happening, and I feel like a fool. It's not happening for me. What's going on? Anybody feel that way? David says, I, I'm trying to wait. Here's my soul. Don't let me look like a fool. But then he, he kind of goes into, right, and this is going to be the big idea all morning. He goes, let those who wait for you not be put to shame. Oh, what's David waiting on? Oh, it's very particular. He's waiting on a kingdom that's been promised. He's waiting on a family to be restored. He's been driven from his family, living as an exile for much of his life. He, there's a lot of concrete things David wants. But what's David really say? I'm waiting for you. Those who wait for you will not be put to shame. That's the big idea. What are we waiting for? David says, when I drill down all around it, it's not the kingdom that I need and my family all restored. I need God himself. I, I need the, the most satisfying thing that my heart could have, which is God. This is, I think, the first step as we intentionally wait, as we wait in ways that cultivate a heart for hope. The second thing David does here, look at this in verse four. He says, make me know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you're the God of my salvation. For you, there it is again, for you I wait all the day long. What is David saying? Teach me your ways. What does that mean? He goes, God, I want to know what you're up to right now. You know, it's okay to ask God that. Like, God, what are you up to right now? Like, here we are in this season. Here we are in this moment. Here's all this stuff going on in our lives. Here's all the things that I can't seem to change or fix about my life. What are you up to right now? We're his children. You know, we can ask that. We can go in prayer and say, God, like, here it is. What, God, what, what might God be up to in your season of waiting right now as you're leaning in to hope? Could it be that there's pride? I know for me that there was pride that God was just trying to smash into little pieces in my heart. Is there some pride in you that needs to just get smashed up? And man, waiting is a good hammer. It will just chip and chip and chip away at your pride until you just go, okay, God, you know, <laughs> here I am. Is there, is there anything other, other character issues in you? Maybe there's, maybe there's a, a, a wound that needs to heal. A wound you would never deal with if you just got the next thing you wanted. If you just got the next promotion, you got the relationship you were looking for. 
everything was just exactly the way you wanted it to go, there might be some deep wound in you that you just ignore your whole life. Oh, it comes out and hurts the people around you. It comes out and, and hurts you as you try to connect with other people, but you don't deal with it because you don't wait. What are the ways of God in your life right now? What are the things that God is up to as you have to sit in the now waiting for the future, waiting for the consolation of everything God has promised to come together for you? What, what are the ways of God? And then he says, what are, what are the paths of God? In other words, in the ways God is working in my life, what are the paths? What are the things he wants me to walk in right now? For, for me, as I begin to see, especially in the area of marriage and family, as I saw many people around me moving into the thing I thought was the thing I really had to have to be happy in life, as I saw all that, what I did know is that God wanted me to continue to follow him into the next thing. So that next thing maybe led me into grad school. Then it led me into seminary. Then it led me into China. And every next thing, what was the thing God had for me? What was the path he wanted me to walk? There's a path you walk as you wait. There's a thing you do. There are people you love. There are people you engage. There, there are people you serve in these days as you wait, as you wait with hope for all that God is doing. Simeon and Anna didn't sit back and do nothing. They waited with an active intentionality toward the hope that God was going to do all the things he said he was going to do. What are the paths? He says, I, got, I want to know your ways. I want to know how you're working right now. And I want to know your paths. What am I supposed to walk in? And of course, the thing that helps me understand both the ways of God and the paths of God is the truth of God. He says what? Lead me in your truth and teach me. So how do I know the ways of God? I pick up the thoughts, stories, words, and actions of God. In this book and in these pages, they show me the ways. They show me how he talks. They show me how he acts. They shows me how he suffers. Shows me how he loves and touches. So I want to know the ways of God. I go to the truth of God. And I say, God, teach me your ways and show me your paths. But you're who I wait for all the day long. You're the thing, I'm, as I pull all this stuff back, I want you. Oh, see, I think that's the secret sauce to Simeon. The Holy Spirit is on him. The Holy Spirit's leading him. What Simeon have, even though nothing in front of him seems to be right, what he has is he has the living God on him and working in him. And that's what he needs. That's all he needs, really, as he waits for all the other things to work themselves out. And he says, hey, I, I wait for you all the day long. Check out what else David does. He says, he says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. What's David do? He goes, in the middle of all this, I, I need your grace. Do you know you can do that? With a soft heart, you can say, God, in the middle of all that I'm walking through, I need your grace. Why? Because in the middle of waiting on you, I'm broken. I'm still messed up. I still make mistakes. I still act out in anger. I still struggle with sin. I battle with failure. God, I, I need your grace in the middle of this waiting. There were so many, and there are so many of seasons of my life and moments 
where as I wait, I need the grace of God to show me. I think here's where the, the enemy lies to us. And maybe you can relate to this. But if you're, in a, if you're in a season of something unresolved, the enemy will often tell you, well, that's because you sinned. You failed. You'll never get God's best anymore. You know that? You'll never, you're never going to get it. Because of that struggle in your life, because of that hidden sin, because of that thing that, that you still battle with and you still strip up and fall. And the, and the lie of the enemy is to come at the children of God and accuse them. And David says, hey, I'm, I'm waiting, but, uh, but God, I, I'm going to declare that you're merciful. And, and I, I need you to remember that. And I need you to, to remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. What, what's Stephen grappling with? He's going, you know, you said I'm going to be king. You said I'm going to rule over the people of God. But you know, I know my own heart here. And maybe, God, you've seen the lust or the struggle of my heart. And maybe, God, you need to show mercy to me. Because if you hold this against me, I'll never get where you've called me to go. And that's true. Outside of the grace and mercy of God, you and I will not get where God has called us to go. But it's a lie of the enemy that says God's withholding from you because of your failures and your sin and your brokenness. That isn't the way the gospel works. The gospel gathers broken children back and gives broken children a future. That's the way the gospel works. And so David says, man, don't forget your mercy. Don't forget your goodness. There are so many times in my life that I've been on the floor, some oftentimes in my shower, and, and I just say, God, I, I just need you to be kind to me. Anybody, anybody ever said that to God? Like, I, I need you to, to, to be just, like, kind. Like, like I'm your child, right? Be, be kind to me. Put your arms around me. Show up for me. Let me know that you haven't forgotten me in this moment of the not yet. This is what the people of God have always had to do. Look at verse 8. He says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. Humility is starting to be the thing that's being cultivated as David waits. Then he says in verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. What's David saying? He is saying, every path you've had me to walk. And guys, go read the story because David walked a lot of crazy paths. He says, every path you made me walk, your faithfulness was there. Every battle I had to fight, ones I won and ones I lost, your faithfulness was there. Having to act like I was a crazy person among the Philistines, your, fa your faithfulness was there. Being hidden in a cave, pressed into a cave with King Saul trying to destroy me and kill me when I know I'm the Lord's anointed, your, your faithfulness was there. Every path the children of God walk the faithfulness of God is there. The question is, do you and I see it? When's the last time you, you picked up something to write on? I'm not good at this. Catherine's awesome at this. I'm not. And you, and, and you got something out and you just begin to record the faithfulness of God. 
you begin to record what God has done, how he was there at every step of the path to this moment and this day to be good to you while you waited. God is faithful and David recognizes it. He says, you've made a covenant with us. Look what he says in verse 11. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a sinner and I need your grace. David repeats. Verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? He, him, will he instruct in the way he should choose, the path he should walk. Verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-doing and his offspring shall inherit the earth. There's the promise of God. Hey, the promise of God is not being withheld from you, David. Verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. Man, this is so rich and so deep and so important to what it looks like to wait. And I think it's what Simeon and Anna had. They had a friendship with the Lord. David says, I have a friendship with the Lord and I've got a covenant-keeping God. Do you have a friendship with the Lord? Because if you have a friendship with the Lord and you realize he is a covenant-keeping, never-failing God that when you wait, knowing he is your friend and knowing that he loves you and knowing that he cannot be unfaithful to you. Did you know that? God cannot be unfaithful to you. You're his children. You belong to him. He cannot break his promises to you. And David says, I I grab onto that. Oh, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's happening next. I I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know if the longings of my heart will ever seem to come through at the right time. But I know you're my friend and you keep covenant. And he says, for those who fear him, other translations, they say, for those who worship him, for those who have come like Anna in prayer and fasting to worship their God every day. God says, you're my friend and I keep an everlasting covenant with you. These are the keys to our intentional waiting toward hope. So David says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Why? Because David can say to the Lord, I am lonely and I am afflicted. I am broken and I feel abandoned and the troubles of my heart have enlarged. The the struggles and the worries and the anxiety of my heart that have grown really big. Anybody's anxieties, anybody's troubles of their heart enlarged over the last year and a half? Coming into a holiday season, still wondering if if things are gonna be ever the way we wanted them or hoped they would be with news every day of new variants that might continue to disrupt our lives. David says, hey, I come to you. You are my friend. You are a covenant-keeping God, but, but I need you to turn to me. Turn your face toward me and be gracious to me. I'm lonely. I'm afflicted. And the troubles of my heart have gotten really big. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness, what's he saying? God, would you hold together my character? 
Would, would, would you make sure, would you, would you let your character, your righteousness get down inside me and, and hold me together, preserve me in this walk with you? May your integrity and uprightness preserve me. For what? For I wait for you. You are my goal. Is Jesus your goal? Because if Jesus is your goal, then you can look back 2,000 years ago and go, yes, he came. And if he came, he will come again. If Jesus isn't your goal, then waiting is fruitless and miserable. And even if you get the thing you think you have to have to be happy, it won't be enough. You'll never get it at the right time, and you'll never get it in the way you thought it was going to be. Unless you have rooted your waiting and your hope in getting the God himself. He goes, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The band can come back up, and I'm, I want to read one more passage that I think ties this together. It's short, but Paul grabs these two words, waiting and hope, and he links them together for the children of God. And he gives us a little synopsis of what has happened in the gospel and how waiting and hope drive our steps forward. Here's what Paul says in Titus 2, verse 11. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus. And bringing salvation for, for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Training us not to get distracted by the things that promise us satisfaction in this world around us. Training us to stop putting our hope in empty things. Stop putting our hope in the, the lies. The things we're trying to grab onto to say that would make me happy. This is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13, and waiting for our blessed hope. You see that phrase? Waiting for our blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope of the children of God? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify what? Purify for himself. He, he made you righteous. He made us righteous for himself to be gained by himself. He's our friend when we wait, but he walks with us because he gets us at the end. Isn't that awesome? That's the whole gospel. That's every step of the journey, God with us, God for us, and he's the end of the destination. The cross and the incarnation are all about God getting his people back to himself, for himself. And if he's not what we're waiting for, if that's not what our heart's leaning toward, we will never be satisfied. And there is nothing on this planet that will ever satisfy you. He says, to purify for himself a people 
for his own possession who are zealous to do the good things he has called them to do for good works. Waiting for our blessed hope to grow into the prize possession of our creator God.